Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Welcome. Welcome, uh, dear listeners. This is podcast number 14 of our series. And before we get going, just a, a short word of thanks to Newcastle Law School, who are our kind sponsors for this one, as well as several others in the past. So this one is Four Seasons Healthcare. It's shortened, tends to be shortened to FSHC, Group Holdings Limited, uh, and Glass, G-L-A-S, Trust Corporation Limited. Uh, mostly shortened, for those in the know, to FSHC, or indeed just Glass Trust, but it's a bit of a mouthful. This is Court of Appeal 2019. So going back a little bit, but we've selected this one because it is Westlaw marks it as significant in terms of guidance and therefore worth talking about. The topic is a sort of mystifying one that most students find mystifying, uh, rectification, which is the court's power to correct documents. And of course, we are talking about contract law, so it's correction of uh, the language used in a, in a contractual document because um, of what's called a common mistake. That is a shared mistake, uh, shared in common. Both of the parties have concluded in error that their final document actually reflected the bargain that they had reached. So this is a bit of equity law, those students sort of a bit perplexed by that. It's not the common law, it's equity, which gives the uh, court power, policing control, you might say, over what we might archaically refer to as unconscionability or unconscionable conduct. And it would be unconscionable to uh, insist on an interpretation uh, given to a contract which does not actually match with the concluded bargain. And a little bit of background, I suppose, because I expect Tim will talk about these principles because he's keen on principles. This also touches and concerns, one might say as a lawyer, uh, a couple of the common law principles. So we've got a principle of equity, but we've also got to juggle two other principles, at least two, I suppose, uh, and they are coming to us from the common law. So the first one is freedom of contract. This idea that Lord Denning once famously said, courts don't correct bargains, they correct documents. In other words, the bargain is down to the parties. And you might say the parties are completely free to enter into a, a, an arrangement, a contract that's not really in their best interests. But that's the idea of freedom of contract. The second principle that comes to us from the common law is this idea of objectivity, which uh, first year students looking at contract law in the first term, they stumble across that quite early on. Uh, in other words, we don't ask the parties what they really meant. We look at the language that they used 
and we use the hat, if you like, of the objective reasonable observer to try and work out what actually they have agreed. Uh, so that's the objectivity principle, and it comes right up against rectification and equity, where you have this sort of possible tension, I suppose, between the objectivity and subjectivity. Subjectivity meaning what you actually thought and meant. Objectivity meaning we don't care what you actually thought. We are looking back as an objective observer. So that's the background. And in this case, uh, it's quite a sort of uh, high value commercial uh, dispute, really, that the parties had uh, entered into um, a, a deed, a, a binding contract, uh, whereby uh, FSHC, Group Holdings, had provided security to Glass Trust Corporation. And that is actually what the intention was. But when one looked objectively at the language that they had drafted, um, it went beyond that not only had they provided security, but they'd also uh, agreed to accept the responsibility or liability for a whole range of debts that were owed by other companies in their group. So that was over and above what subjectively uh, everyone was thinking was the bargain. But that's what the language appeared to mean on an objective basis. So the central question or issue you might say is, okay, um, can this document be rectified, corrected uh, in those circumstances? And both the first instance judge and the Court of Appeal had no difficulty really in saying uh, this is not what objectively was intended by the parties looking at the correspondence that had passed between their solicitors. Um, that It went beyond what they had objectively shown to have agreed. Um, but at the Court of Appeal level, uh, there was a, an issue or question as to the test. That is, the test for rectification in this circumstance, is it wholly objective, which is really what the law seemed to suggest up to this point, or was it subjective? In other words, uh, could one ask the parties what they truly intended? That is what was going on in their minds. And quite a strong Court of Appeal, I say strong because when one looks at the identities of the judges in this case, we've got Lord Justice Flo, Lord Justice Leggett, Lady Justice Rose. Two of those uh, were, after this case, elevated to the Supreme Court. And it was also a unanimous judgment. So I suppose there are two reasons there why I would say this is a pretty strong judgment of the Court of Appeal, which is possibly shows why Westlaw, for example, and no doubt Lexis give this as significant. It's a little odd, I would say, to just kick us off, whether um, Tim and Severine agree with this or have some other comments. It's a little odd because uh, it wasn't strictly necessary to have looked at this test for the purposes of this appeal. This is the Court of Appeal not exactly going out on a limb, but uh, taking it upon themselves to clarify uh, what they thought the law uh, was or indeed ought to be. Um, and I say clarify because if you look at the case decision, you will see that the law up to that point had been understood to be how it was explained by Lord Hoffman in Chartbrook and Persimmon Homes in, uh, back in 2009. And then that's uh, House of Lords at that time and an obiter 
dicta. Nevertheless, uh, anything that comes out of Lord Hoffman is generally viewed as good value for money, as it were. Um, and, and that was the thing that uh, the test that we had been basing our understanding on. And, and he was saying that it's an objective test in those circumstances. So we've got a difference of view between Overton decision in 2009 of Lord Hoffman and now the Court of Appeal 10, 10 years later who say, no, in these circumstances, it's subjective. So with that in mind, I can now throw it across, as it were, to Tim and to Severine. Uh, have the Court of Appeal got it right? Any interesting thoughts? What do you reckon? Can I just, just, sorry, that will mean a little bit of uh, maybe further explanation on the fact. And so maybe, you know, the students, so I'm, I'm talking to you both here. Do we need to say that, you know, perhaps something, Maggie, you haven't said in the fact, which I think is quite important to understand uh, this particular. In 2012, the FSHC had agreed to provide security and then something was lost. And so in order to, um, to, to, to remedy that, then in 2016, uh, for, for the assignment, you know, because the assignment had not been executed, then two deeds were executed. And that's where the common mistake or, you know, the issue arose. Uh, I'm happy for, you know, people not to, you know, but I, I think that is important to see what the dispute uh, was on. What do you think? Yeah, I think it just really shows that um, possibly these documents were drafted in something of a hurry. Well, I, I don't know. So I, the way I understand the fact is that... Um, the, the 2012 agreement effectively uh, had not been executed as it was meant because there was something missing. Yes. So, uh, in order to remedy that oversight, yes. two deeds were executed and in order to provide the missing security. But that's where it was discovered, unless I got it wrong, that those two security agreements added obligation to FSHC and so that's where FSHC asks rectification of those deeds so that effectively the 2016 agreement simply puts the parties back into the execution and the performance of the 2012 and so that's where rectification comes in. They, don't, they didn't want to have added obligation and so for me that's quite important for the, the people who listen to understand why is rectification being claimed? Yes, I, I think I said, if you remember, that um, the agreement, as when you look at it, went over and above what they had originally jointly intended. So the joint intention, whether it's in 2012 or subsequently, was merely to provide security. Uh, okay. a, a, charge or, that, a charge so. or a mortgage yeah. over some corporate assets. But when yeah. you looked at the actual document and interpreted it as a court would do, um, yeah. the, the, the document went beyond that yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, okay. and, and provided an agreement to be responsible for debts. So that's a bit different. Well, it's a, it's yeah, a, it's no, a big difference. 
Um, okay. I, and I think you're right. I think it was because they realized these documents were missing uh, and that they are, the absence of these documents meant that the company was uh, in breach of, uh, of obligations as to the existence of the documents. Yeah. And that, yeah, would, yeah, yeah. that would trigger all sorts of other horrible consequences. So I think this was probably done, I won't say in a panic, but somewhat hurriedly, um, yeah. and uh, perhaps the checking and the scrutiny, uh, you know, with it's 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 very clear for us to be sort of wise after the event. Um, but but at the time, maybe in retrospect, yeah. that the firms of solicitors involved might have said, "Well, I didn't actually look at it as carefully as perhaps I would have done if I'd had three weeks." I think what they were saying was that, that two partners involved thought each other had checked, uh, that each of the others yeah. checked the, yeah, well and, and, you know, and then you know, that, basically that's, blaming that's the poor junior so, uh, associate there or whatever. That's well, well poor, you know, yeah, uh, yeah but the, yeah. The, the partner signs it off uh, and, and, and he, he takes responsibility or she takes responsibility. But yes, it had been delegated down. And I think, I think it's just, uh, you know, one of these things that happens in, in somewhat of a row. I think from that we can, we can. Yeah, sorry, Maggie, I hadn't, you know, I think it, for me, it, you know, it, it took me a while to try to understand the whole case, what, you know, what was being rectified. And when I finally got it, so I, that's why I wrote down the 2012 and the 2016. Yeah, so well, I, in, I suppose that's a fair point because uh, students reading this uh, yeah, yeah, or, they, or anyone coming yeah. to this kind of like cold, you can yeah. get terribly bogged down. In 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 the, in, in the detail, and then that you sort of lose sight of you know the the, the yeah. principle. The, the principle itself is actually quite complex, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that's the interesting so, thing, so, isn't so, it? Because so, your question is basically in two parts. One is one is do you agree with the outcome of the case, and then basically two, do we agree with the principles as it's been restated? Um, you know the 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 approach. Or the deviation from Lord Hoffman and Maggie. I'm quite interested here. You must be quite conflicted. Well, you you won't be surprised, will you? I, I agree with the uh, the end result, the outcome, but I'm a contrarian, I suppose, and I'm also a fan of Lord Hoffman to to my grave. Um, and I think there there are some problems with the reasoning of the Court of Appeal in this, this case. This is going to be a good one, isn't it? I don't know if you... I can, I can tell already. Do you yeah, want me so. to elaborate or do well, we, shall want, we Shall we pick something your out? Where, where's your first... I mean, the, the objective... I think you summarised that already, so I don't think we need to go into much more detail. So this idea... Well, the one thing I might add is, of course, that Legat suggests a certain... There could be a hybrid approach somewhere in here. This is when he's reviewing all the other cases, isn't he? He says there could be a hybrid position in which objectivity comes in as a basis of evidence and subjectivity so of the subjective position um so basically there's an objective assessment of the subjectivity which was interesting um but basically the positions that we're arguing against well that's always so that's that's always so if by that he means uh, we ask someone what they intended, but we sort of run a reality check over that, as it were, which is kind of like to, to sort of ask yourself, how, how likely is this to have genuinely been intended, um, given these people are sophisticated business people and act reasonably and all the rest of it? So there's sort of a sort of implicit objectivity 
in that when you sort of test the credibility, I suppose, of a view that is said to be subjectively held. Well, and then there's also the approach that you could take that you say, well, not just is it is it just a mistake that someone objectively held, but did they actually hold the mistake? In other words, again, a, a matter of more of evidence, I would say, than than of than of a legal test. Is it a mistake? So I'm, I'm proving here objectively that there was a mistake, but I might not have actually had that mistake. I might not have actually subjectively held that mistake. Uh, well, I think we have to be careful about the subjective uh, objectivity idea. What is it that we are scrutinising through the lens of subjectivity or objectivity? Oh, yeah, let's go there. It, it's not that. <clears throat> it's not the mistake mistake it's the intention which is slight a bit different isn't it the mistake is that both parties thought the final document reflected their intentions that had previously been concluded and settled upon and so it's the yes. it's the intentions that we are trying to judge what was each party's intention at that prior point, as it were? Yes. I think the um, common intention that uh, I'm, I'm trying to look at the paragraph, the, the conclusion of Legat is 176, and when he makes the distinction between common mistake and then the second uh, position. So the outward, now they have clarified that the common intention is not based on an agreement because we also have to untangle all that, you know, whether we need a prior agreement or not. But this is the outward expression of the court. I just wanted to agree with you. Good God. <laughs> Are you feeling unwell? You use, you use, I know, I know. You, you use the particular expression that, you know, has been used by Liggett because for me... I suppose it might be useful for amazing. students to just sort of... Just, just peel back to the, the very exactly. simple say, approach here. Because... Yeah. Yes. Yes. As a pedagogical tool, I think that, again, as ever, this is brilliant because it, it, it gives the context, it explains, you know, the mistake and, and et cetera, et cetera, and the distinction between rectification and how the judges uh, construct contract and so all these things. So I think there is an awful lot of entangling and there is an awful lot uh, to be done uh, in this in this decision and perhaps to go back to what you were saying Maggie as to whether the uh, you know whether the Court of Appeal here went off on a tangent or not well in a way as a pedagogical tool that is a brilliant they, they have uh, solved a few problems and trying to put a few problems to bed so to speak, with again raising the distinction between uh, interpretation of contract and other uh, tools by which the courts can uh, look at what the parties. But the reasoning so, that there, there's still so. a bit of oddity about it because if you look at it very simply, um, there are two forms of mistake that might be considered by any court looking at rectification. And, and, and the first one is common mistake, and that's this what we're talking about here. But through time, common mistake has uh, become sort of developed uh, away from the very simple or simpler case where you have a prior concluded binding contract 
but then you have a subsequent document which uh, tries to capture that agreement contract in a written form. Yes. And that's that's how common mistake and rectification got going, as yeah. it were. So you have a, a, a concluded agreement. Let's say for sake of argument, it was purely oral because that was the original simple form of this. And then the party said, well, we better nail this down in writing. So we've got a permanent record. That's how things started. Uh, and so they did so. Uh, but when they were capturing the uh, agreement that they had already made, a mistake was made. And that's why you can see in the, that very simple case uh, that the law using equity probably has no difficulty in saying, well, we must correct the documents because the document does not reflect the contract, albeit oral, that had previously been reached. But through time, common mistake became enlarged, as it were, so that, uh, you know, that Jocelyn case, if any student is, is looking this up, that, that gets mentioned in, in all of these cases, it, it got extended to the situation where you didn't necessarily have to have a prior concluded uh, agreement, but you did have to have what the judges referred to as a settled common intention on this particular point. You see where I'm going with this? Yes. Um, and then you have a, a written document which captures the agreement as it were. So this is extending common mistake to the situation where there's no prior uh, binding contract, but there is settled agreement. Now, yes. Lord Hoffman's line up to uh, 2019, and therefore this case that we're looking at now, was that it would be strange or anomalous if we treat those two types of common mistake differently for the purposes of rectification, because they are merely the same thing, but procedurally uh, have have been reached in, 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 in a different way. But it, it would be anomalous to treat them any differently. And I don't think if you were looking carefully at Chartbrook and, and what he said later in Brit Oil, so if anyone's trying to trace all these flipping cases that discuss this, Brit Oil is the other major one. I don't think he was saying exclusively the evidence has to be objective. So a subjective evidence is uh, certainly admissible. But I think what he was saying was where you have a settled agreement, although it's not enforceable as a contract, on a particular point, because the parties have agreed that was our settled intention, in order to understand what that intention was, you're naturally going to use the typical objectivity, the standard approach of English law in order to understand what they had agreed. But the Court of Appeal here have taken this form of common mistake where there is no prior settled agreement and I would use the word a bit harsh, I suppose, dislocated it away from where it actually sits. That is common mistake as an extension of a prior concluded contract and shifted it into the other form of mistake where rectification is possible. And that is unilateral mistake, which is uh, now we're into the terrain of Tim, who's keen on such things. But unilateral mistake, and he'll tell me when I get this wrong, 
is really looking at subjective intention because unilateral, only one party has made the mistake, but the other party knows, subjectively knows that you've made this mistake and unconscionably says nothing to take advantage of your stupidity, possibly. And that's so classic, therefore, for equity to say, whoa, hang on, <laughs> this can't be right. But this is very happily in the area of subjectivity because of this knowledge of the mistake that the other party is making. And that's what makes it quite different. So I think Lord Hoffman would say that these are in two categories. And unilateral is about subjectivity. But a common mistake is not sub subjectivity is not inadmissible evidence but the, the purest form of the test is is objective but now we have court of appeal 2019 saying no no that's not right <clears throat> it's a subjective test in this situation and lord justice leggett says he sees no anomaly in concluding in that way but that's that's where i have a problem so i don't know uh, you agree with Lord Justice Leggett? No anomaly. This is not a problem. What do you reckon? I guess here there was no unilateral mistake on the fact. No. You know, so I can see, Maggie, that what you're saying, but in this particular case, it was not a unilateral mistake. It is the position of the Court of Appeal here is clear that... In the, the test for rectification now, post-trial broke, which I guess is overruled here. So objectively, if there is a, a prior contract, and even if there is no contract, but the parties had what they called the common continuing intention. So that's why it cannot be unilateral. But I think what is important to be said here is that the first basis is done on the normal objective standards of interpretation and the second one will be done bringing the equitable principle of against conscience and good faith. So I can see what you're saying, but here there is no unilateral mistake. No, and yet the Court of Appeal are treating it really in an analogous situation. Yes and no, because I think it is right to make the distinction when there is, and that's where perhaps I can see why, you know, you call it going on a tangent. And Tim is quite quiet. Tim, you'll have to come here at some point. I'm the, waiting. I'm, I'm right here. Oh, you're waiting. <laughs> you, 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 you're waiting to pounce. You're, <laughs> but so... In a way here, I think what Legat is trying to do is to, and I know you can't see me because my, it's bringing lots of threads to try to logically bring everything together. So for the first basis for rectification, when there is a prior contract, when he says that it's based on contract interpretation, based on normal objective standards of interpretation, that makes perfect sense. And I guess because there is no contract, even though the language, I can see what probably makes you feel a little uneasy, Maggie, that basis for granting rectification is the equitable doctrine that a party cannot, against conscious and good faith, be allowed to enforce the terms. So I can see where perhaps indeed here, you know, they're, they're, they're using the, the language of as if there is a contract, but there is no written contract. But for me, it is a neat 
trick to try to understand the basis upon which rectification is going to sit upon. Mm. What does mm. Tim think? Because I, I have, I have we've, problem. We've I covered a, a lot of ground there, there, haven't we? We've, we've, we've <laughs> just raced through a whole load of stuff. So I, I let, me, let me jump on the idea with unilateral mistake in the connection. I mean, our typical case of Hartog comes comes to mind, but, but we can, I mean, that's the typical unilateral mistake. But we're also thinking of kind of slip of the pen, right? That the person writes 3,000 when they're meant to write 300 or whatever. And the other party knows about it. So that's a kind of, ex post facto knowledge it's it's the person knows beforehand that the other is making a mistake and then there's something i'm going to say in bad faith here that the other party party is taking advantage of that and so so the court has very little difficulty in saying right okay we need to correct that yes but just make the point there that it would naturally therefore be a subjective approach that needs to be taken Absolutely. because because you are you're talking about what someone actually knew so you're going to have to prove what they actually knew so that's classic well we have we have discussed this or should have known right the the wind, willful closing of the eyes center uh, of well, okay but 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 willful closing of eyes is is viewed by the english uh, common law as pretty much the same, same as, as knowing yeah yeah, yeah 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 which marries up with some kind of objectivity there, right? We're, we're assessing at least objectively whether the other party knew. Well, I mean, you know, criminal law uses it, other branches of law use it with, with no difficulty. It's the Nelsonian blind yeah, eye. Yeah. You know, you, you did actually know, but you closed your mind uh, to what was obvious to you. That's still subjectivity. Yes, has to be. Yes. It's a, you know, you might say a reckless disregard. Uh, you, you, you know, but you closed your mind to it. That's still subjective, what's going on in your mind. Whereas if you're talking about negligence, for example, that's what you should have known if you'd been taking care. That's uh, way, way down the hierarchy of, of knowledge. That is more about what's reasonable. That's what a reasonable known. person would have known in your position. Yeah. But well, in, in a position that was. Yeah. OK. Um, but that so, but my point there was that this subjective knowledge still occurred before the entering into the contract. Yes. Now, with our scenario here, what we have is a similar slip of the pen, right? They they thought they were recording their their agreement, and 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 actually they made an error in doing so, right? And they they wrote the wrong thing down. More than a slip of a pen, but <laughs> well, in this particular, <laughs> in yes, this in, is... in FSHC, but we could imagine the scenario as being. You know. I can tell you what happened. They've they've used the wrong precedent document. Oh yeah, basically. yeah. They went to the wrong database. Uh, oh, they and, went to the right database. And no picked one, out the wrong, no yeah. one scrutinised it sufficiently carefully. That's all. But that knowledge. Okay, so there's no, there's no, there's no actual knowledge that the mistake occurred. I mean, both parties are unaware at this stage that you know when they're signing the yes. document, quite obviously that 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 that, that has happened. However. If there is a subjective intention on both parties, then the principle is still pretty much the same, which is now that, that the knowledge appears ex ante. So, um, yeah, sorry, the previously was exposed. Anyway, afterwards, the party gets the knowledge, right? The, 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 so after the agreement, the party is now in full knowledge that there was a mistake and subjectively knows that there was that mistake, uh, that there, there was that error. Had they picked up on it beforehand, we would have been in the same situation of subjective knowledge as we would in cases like Hartog or, or other cases. So the position of the other party, apart from the malicious taking advantage, 
isn't fundamentally different. Right? The, the it's a question of evidence and how difficult it is to win a, a claim for rectification. That, where that's it, not in, the principle. Practice, uh, no, now you're bringing in what, externalities, which I will agree with you on, which I'll also agree on this case, uh, or, or with you on, on the Hoffman approach. If we take into account certain externalities, third parties, as in Rose and Prim, general certainty, you know, that's Hobhouse in Olympic pride, binding people to something they didn't really objectively agree to, then I agree, those are externalities, but that's different to the principle uh, yeah, that okay. we're looking I, at. I, I'm not talking about externalities, as, as you put it, third parties and so forth. I, I'm just simply making the point now that the decision of the Court of Appeal here has made it harder to succeed in a claim for rectification. And you might say, well, that doesn't matter. Uh, but I would say it makes this disconnect between a claim for rectification on common mistake where there has been a prior uh, binding uh, contract and a situation of common mistake where there has been a settled prior intention but no binding contract. In that second category of case, it is much harder to succeed in a claim for rectification, but that does not seem to have been the intention of English law when it extended common mistake to the situation where there was a settled, concluded arrangement on a point but no binding contract. Why is that based on evidence? Harder. Because proving anything on a subjective test generally is much harder to win because you are having to prove what was going on in the head of the other party. That's pretty hard to prove because courts, if you think about it, are geared up to assess evidence which they can read, hear and evaluate for themselves using this sort of lens of objectivity, which is this reasonable observer. And you might actually say, what are we talking about here? When we talk about the reasonable observer, we're talking about the judge because it's what he or she thinks uh, must have been in the party's minds. That is much easier, certainly to predict what's going to happen at trial. And therefore, it's going to naturally filter uh, lots of cases will fall by the wayside if you have a subjective test because any barrister would say, well, this is going to be harder to prove because I'm going to have to, you're going to have to prove uh, on what evidence we've got what the other side were thinking. It's pretty hard to prove what someone else is thinking. Do you see where I'm going with this? But it wasn't particularly hard in this case because... Not in this case, but remember... They could simply remember, show, and I think an objective okay, would have not, been harder. Not in this case. Well, no, no no different is what the judges were saying. Well, yeah. uh, and, 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 and remember with our case law, our system of precedent, it's not really about the outcome in a particular case because we have guidance that will apply across the board. In this case, as I said in the intro, actually, it wouldn't have made any difference whether the test applied was objective or subjective. So you're quite right. Uh, the party would have succeeded under any of those two tests. But that may not be so for, for parties to come in the future. And they are now stuck with a subjective type test having to prove what the other party was thinking. I think that's hard. <laughs> it is based, it's still based on 
the common continuing intention. So they yes. will still have, you know, the, as it said here, the outward expression yes. of a chord. So they yes. will still, I, I know what you mean, but there is there are still some elements in, in, in writing that will be used by, yes. you know, in order to assess. Well, I know. suppose in most cases, and the more sophisticated and commercial the case, the more that you're likely to have of that. Yes. yes. I'm and not sure. I'm, I, I, I'm not convinced yet. I, I, I wonder. So if we take, if I can prove, so take, take this case, for example, where they can prove that they had at one moment in time a subjective intention. And, and they can prove that they continued with that intention. Now, that can't be too hard because, you know, internal memos, emails, what, whatever, you can, on your own part, that's fairly easy. Now, at some point, Lega then says, well, it's, it's then whether you can basically rebut the presumption that at some moment in time, that intention transferred to the other party. Now, okay, I accept there's some objectivity in that, is there? Or it's it's, it's not really transferring. You're you're trying to show that mutually at the same time through these negotiations up to the the parties reached a settled point of agreement, and both parties in their own minds had that same settled conclusion. And and Severin's point is that uh, that alone is insufficient. You also have to show that that was manifested. Uh, crossing the line sometimes is a, is a phrase that I think is used. Um, in, in other words, it, something was written or said uh, to the other party. So, yes, uh, that is true. But the judges true. make the point that that's not even quiet if we're, if we're talking about purely subjective then we can have that they're working in a certain industry it has doesn't have to be expressed well by the yes i think lord justice legger kind of like says well there must be a situations where the understanding is tacitly held yes. i think is what he's getting at that that's i think what you're you're thinking about now tim yes. so something about the particular marketplace for example or the particular type of business um, all, all the parties involved in that sort of business uh, always have that understanding. It's a shared uh, assumption of, of the market. So that sort of reminds me, I don't know about you, of sort of that case that we have done a podcast on, the Wells and Divani yes, one. Yes, yes. Uh, of the, the, the estate agent's fee. It was sort of tacitly understood that if uh, I sell your house for you, you pay me. Yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't think I'm, Severin I'm doesn't have as much trouble with this reasoning as as I do. I think I don't know where you sit now, Tim. I, I I think I think as a so well, we haven't actually got to the part that I have difficulties with on the purely objective approach yet. Okay. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> we've, tell we've, us, we've got a tell long us what you have difficulty go. with. Um, so where, I mean, where do you have difficulty? So the first one I think I think I've mentioned in a different context, which was you know we we could have. A mistake that's objectively held, which then turns out they don't actually hold that mistake, so subjectively don't hold. Another thing is if we're starting to align things with a mistake we can often throw into the kind of formation category, um, we're having here a difficulty that we're moving away from the promise C objectivity and we're, we're accepting a third party objectivity, which was actually rejected. Was it Denning, I think, who, who, who said, you know, these are the three possible ways we can interpret and then, and then landed on promise C objectivity. Well, here, here we're now 
throwing that out the window and we're saying, well, it's not about the promising objectivity anymore. It's about the third party objectivity. So we're introducing a, a different type of objectivity, even why? though we're, Why is it third party? Because that's what the court says. Yeah, what, why? No. Yeah. What, what do you mean third party objectivity? What does so it's, that mean? A, it's a reasonable bystander looking at what was said. Yes. Rather yes. than promising objectivity, a, a reasonable person receiving the promise. Uh, well, are, are they just talking about that because uh, that's the natural approach when you are interpreting a contract? You stand back from either of the parties at that point. Yeah, what would a reasonable, objective person? Yeah, so I, I agree with Severin so, on okay. that one. So that, no, no, that's uh, that now. We're now we're moving on to the, my third issue. Um, very nice. So we. So we take it there from the interpretation, we're moving then from the formation stage to the interpretation stage. So we're talking here about interpretation, construction of the document. Now, what I thought Severine was going to pick up by now was in the mention in paragraph 146 of good faith. Um, I thought we'd be on that by now, well, um, but I'll, you, I'll leave that had, for, for you've a moment. I've had my views on, you know, good faith. I think this is, you know, I mean, it to, is... To... <laughs> Well, that's just to recognise that rectification comes from equity. Right. And equity is about policing conscionability, is the old-fashioned yeah. word. Uh, a more modern phrase might well be good faith, but I think they are synonyms here in this particular yes. setting. Yes. I was still hoping Joe Severin was going to jump on we that. We can agree to disagree on that, whether they are, you know, I think what is interesting for me is that, you know, legatis. <laughs> Again, talking about good faith, and he's quite happy, you know, he's, he's throwing good faith in when there is no contract, and so therefore he's bringing the equitable principle, uh, whether that's one way of, you know, for him to bring good faith through the back door. But um, yes, I was trying to think how I feel about it, because it's only mentioned in the same line as against good conscience and all that, and for me that is, you know, again, um, uh, you know, reducing good faith to what we cannot do as opposed to uh, what positively uh, it could do. But I guess that would be one way of, you know, formally bringing in. And, and there are discussions, uh, academic discussions. I, I Right now I can't give you uh, scholarly articles, but the, the question as to whether good faith is, is, is an equitable principle and fiduciary principles are the same, uh, there is good discussion on about it. So that's why I actually didn't want to go <laughs> into the discussion of good faith because I think it is a, not a minor point, uh, but for me the uh, decision is more important in trying to put all, pull all the threads of where interpretation comes in and, you know, and in the same way that we have had discussion of interpretation versus implication of terms as two different things. And so here, um, I think maybe that's what he was trying to do here, to doctrinally and in terms of points of principle, trying to put things into categories which are reasonably clear, even though can clearly be linked um, by the fact that he also talks about policies, you know, the, the reason why, I think that's also important. But so, yeah, that's my little point on uh, good faith, team. sorry. Do you know <laughs> who always pulls the threads together? Our 
sponsor. Newcastle. Very good. Thank you, Maggie. There we are. Newcastle Law School. I am beginning to learn how to play this game. Our sponsor. (laughs) Very good. Newcastle Law School provides genuine research-led teaching so you can explore contemporary legal issues taught by experts in their field. Learn more about their international commercial law LLM or international and global challenges LLM by visiting uh, ncl.ac.uk. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Yay, us. thank you. Thank you. So, skipping ahead. So that was our paragraph 146, and, and we'll come back to the good faith. I, I do find it interesting. It can't be a coincidence, of course, that Legat mentions good faith in the journal. I mean, it really no. can't. We can't. No. Yeah. I agree. But um, what, what I want to get at on the interpretation point is that now we're getting to the common sense element. Uh, paragraph 190, I think he says. Well, there's a, it, it sounds like we're, we're introducing this common sense, commercial common sense, looking as a third party at this document. Where that means that we're trying to move mistake really from the formation element to an interpretive device, and then I agree. Then we can take them. Then we can jump into this. This should be purely an objective test, putting aside the whole evidence element. Um, and I do need to think more about your point, Maggie, about it being harder to prove the subjective part. But I'm, I'm really what I'm about. I think with the objective subjective is. What is doctrinally cleaner? I think if you look at the, just on that point, I think if you look at Lord Justice Lake, I think he's acknowledged that because he says, yes, it is harder to prove. I accept yeah. that, but it should be quite difficult to succeed. So he, he does acknowledge um, that at some point. Quite, yes. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to, to go back on that one and to, to accept that. But I still think that the subjective approach is doctrinally the cleaner approach now we have some difficulties and that's what i was mentioning with the externalities earlier on is that in certain circumstances i think we have to we have to accept that that is not the only i'm going to say value in in competition here or in balance here um rose and pin for example were a great example in which we can we can accept that even though there might have been a mistake and even though the parties had a shared understanding and i i, I think underlyingly even the judges act, um, accepted that we couldn't change the bargain because it was part of a bigger picture which comes back to the certainty point and i'm wondering whether there it would have been just a bit more elegant to actually divide the test up and to accept that there's other elements within the law of mistake well the, the law of mistake and rectification common mistake rectification that need to be taken into account which could impact any decision right we can't rectify a document if others have relied on it well i i suppose in in fairness yeah but in fairness no judgment will necessarily talk about the other uh, factors that a claimant will have to show if they're not live issues um, then it's not necessary for the purposes of that judgment. So uh, an effect, for example, on a third party might be a reason why a court exercising its discretionary power to rectify yes. might refuse. So, you know, one could acknowledge that rectification, given that it's rooted in equity, is rooted in court discretion, and there may be another of a number of factors uh, that the court will have in mind that just weren't relevant in this particular case. So I don't not, think not anyone no, was but banging on about them. To make. So doctrinally, then, the cleaner approach is either we're moving 
common mistake rectification towards interpretate as an interpretive device of the document, then fine, we can take an objective well, approach. Or it's actually something that was that is more relevant to formation as 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 a principle within it, in which case we need to be looking at the subjective approach. Now, the, the few issues is the fact that we've taken the subjective uh, the objective approach leads us to this problem, right? Germany, for example, wouldn't have this kind of problem um, in the same way as, you know, because they're largely committed to the subjective viewing, although then they have to get at it with remedies later on. So we're in this position because we generally take an objective approach. And I think that would be a justification if this is a corrective within the system for um, taking an ob purely objective approach to formation, um, then, then, and interpretation for that matter, then we need that as a corrective and then it should be subjective. Well, uh, we, we are, English common law is, is more or less wedded to objectivity because of the strength of certainty and predictability. And it's going to take a radical shift to move English common law away from that, I would suggest. Uh, and Germany may have a, a different take on things, but that that's supposedly uh, or globally a strength of the English common law, that it is certain and predictable, all other things being equal. But at the same time, uh, English law recognises that there are instances, and you use the word corrective, I think I, I, I could adopt that now, where, where correctively it's necessary to move away from that objectivity and a rectification, for example, on the basis of unilateral mistake, I think is one of the best examples that we have of that. So my I would like to note that Maggie is getting fairly dangerously close to almost agreeing with me. <laughs> uh, I'd like this noted in the calendar with a big cross. Well, well you, you know, my love, that I will agree on certain things, nah, but it's not go. a universal... Uh, you, you, you can't assume that I will on all things. So that, that my only point of difficulty is, is putting this form of common mistake splitting it away from the other form of common mistake and shoving it with unilateral mistake. That's where I have problems. What makes you say it is shoving it with unilateral mistake? I think that's the point I... Maybe my brain... Maybe my brain because... Here, but I, because here it was clearly accepted that both parties were under the same misapprehension mistake. So... Yeah, yes, but uh, for common mistake in its classic form, uh, which is uh, you have a prior concluded contract which you haven't reduced into writing. Yeah. You with me so far? But then, but then you do put it into writing, and in that exercise of capturing it into writing, you make a mistake, yeah. you make a cock up, yeah. something is yeah. written wrongly, yeah. something is left out, you use the wrong language, those sorts of things. That is classic for the common mistake rectification, uh, where a court of appeal in, in this case is uh, it accepts entirely that the test there for understanding what the agreement was that you then tried to capture into writing is an objective one in accordance with the normal kind of like English law take in terms of objectivity. But what they've done in this case is to say, aha, but 
Where you don't have a prior concluded contract, something binding and enforceable that you could go through a court, uh, but you do have a settled arrangement and agreement on this particular point, that's different. And that is more like unilateral mistake, which is why I'm saying that they've pulled this form of common mistake away from the other form of common mistake and doctrinally, if that's the phrase, uh, aligned it with unilateral mistake. Unilateral mistake, we're all agreed, the test is essentially subjective. You knew that I'd made a mistake, you knew what was in my tiny mind, and you knew that I'd made a mistake. Uh, that's classic for subjective tests, but they've pulled this form of common mistake away from, I would say, its roots and thrust it somewhere else. That's what, what I have trouble with. So, so the reason why I'm yeah. convinced by this decision is by a spectrum here. Here, what the Court of Appeal for me tried to do is to cover so that the distinction between the first and the second basis for rectification, as it turns out, is highlighted here in this particular case, is quite fine. And for me, where I disagree with you, Maggie, in relation to pulling it towards uh, the unilateral mistake, it's because even if the test is different, because in the first basis, when there is a prior contract, it's based on contract interpretation, and for the second, it's based on the equitable mm -hmm. principle uh, of good faith, Mm -hmm. then the Court of Appeal yeah. still makes it clear that even if there is nothing reduced in writing, there is still this um, a common continuing intention. So the outward expression of an accord. So it's still based, again, looking at it objectively, what would, a third, what would the objective person, you know, the, the, the reasonable um observer, which I think here means nothing more than, you know, replacing the reasonable man. Um, so the hypothetical observer here, so it's still pulling in the fact that, yes, they might not have actually entered into writing, but there is an agreement. Well, then, you, then you've got another problem, haven't you? You've got a problem now with the relationship between that uh, point of law that previously we all thought we needed, this sort of manifest intention, the crossing the line point, uh, now how does that sit with uh, the Court of Appeal here saying, well, the test is fundamentally subjective? We've got a sort of, uh, a, not exactly a jarring, but someone will have to work out in later cases how those two uh, facets, as it were, or two requirements actually sit wholly together um it's it's a bit of an uncomfortable fit i think, I think. The common continuing intention to use the expression of the court can still be you know what was for me was the next step that a contract was going to be entered into writing i think that's how i understand it so based on everything that we can objectively assess that's the you know the common continuing intention well, no, I, I think that the manifest idea of, of your intention is to get over that. What, what this is really getting at at its nub is that whatever your intentions were individually as one of the parties, that in itself won't do. 
It's insufficient for the law because there has to be something by which we can see and observe, as it were. So there has to be that, that phrase of crossing the line. There has to be something which you've shared outwardly yes. with the other party as to your intentions, because otherwise anyone could say anything was their intention. And therefore that's why... That's why it is a common mistake. It's still a common mistake and not a unilateral one. Uh, well, the point of distinction really is the the knowledge or the lack of knowledge of the uh, error that's being made by the other party. That That's what makes the difference. If it's common mistake, then um, both parties are labouring under the same misapprehension, as it were. It's not a situation where one party knows the truth, if you like, knows the true position and also knows that the other guy's making this mistake. That That's unilateral. With, with common mistake, you, you're both innocently, as it were, if I use that word for a minute, in, entirely in good faith, if I use that word that you like, or that phrase that you like, uh, proceeding on the same basis. So it doesn't have anything like uh, the sort of unconscionability um, tones around it, as it were. The only area where you can see that there's unconscionability is, I think, a point that Lord Hoffman made um, in way back when, um, when he's saying, well, there would be some unconscionability where the party, even in common mistake, where the party is resisting a claim for rectification. It's at a later point to take uh, Tim's idea of timing. It's at a much later point when you're in a dispute in a, in a court, as it were. But there's still at that later point the prospect of some unconscionability. You know, you, you, you have legal advice. You, you, you knew what you were doing and uh, you are resisting in an expensive fashion. You're calling someone to, to take all these court proceedings and, and make the claim good. Uh, so that could be unconscionable, but it's a much later point in time. But that shouldn't really matter. Right? The, the mischief is still the same. No, okay. But I'm, I'm just, I'm, yeah, okay. But I'm, I'm trying to, uh, trying to see where the points of differences are between these different forms of mistake. Um, they're, they're, I accept entirely there can be unconscionability in all of the forms, but it's happening at a different moment in time in the relationship, if I put it that way. I, so would, I would tend to agree. I, I'm still not quite sure we know exactly where we disagree on in, in the detail, yes, I, I except that we come to yes. different conclusions, which is, which is fascinating. Yes. I think, I think yes. what we're saying is... so. Maggie said it a lot better than, than I could, is ba basically I'm saying we're trying to fix the same thing as with unilateral mistake, and therefore the subjectivity is actually justified. Maggie is saying if we look at the historically what we're trying to trying to fix, as it were, then as a matter of continuity, objectivity is actually the, the, the better route to go down to, or, or the cleaner route, as it were, to go down. But but my point is that uh, it does not make evidence of subjective intention inadmissible. So in, in a sense, we're sort of uh, all of these cases are getting the terminology. Uh, you know, we're sort of seizing on it, uh, and I think with respect, that's what Lord Hoffman has been misunderstood on. I, I don't think he was saying evidence of subjective intention is not admissible. Uh, 
uh, it's simply that when you are trying to interpret what a settled intention was, you would naturally, as English court, be viewing it through the lens of objectivity. It's not what you thought it meant. It's what it seems to mean using an objective interpretive approach, which is standard for English common law. Maybe different in Germany and so forth, but that's the natural way we interpret uh, agreements. We view them objectively, their meaning. So he's saying subjective evidence is, is, is fine up to a point. It's not ruled out, but it's not the way in which you interpret the language which is used in any contractual setting. That point, if you've got a settled agreement or you have a binding contract, you would naturally be interpreting the language objectively. Doesn't you rely on heavily though, point, on the quote by Denning? Denning saying something along the lines of, "We we only we only consider contracts and documents, not intentions." I mean, that sounds to me like he's saying no, subjective intentions well, he, are not relevant. No, I think he's trying to make the point that that I'm. Uh, trying to explain and, and not as uh, elegantly as Lord Denning ever would have done. But I, th I think that, it, that simply to acknowledge that when we are interpreting uh, the language used in a contract uh, and extend that out now because of the development of the law of rectification to a situation where we might not have a binding contract, but we do have a settled agreement on a particular point, to understand the meaning aka interpretation or construction of that, we apply an objective approach. And so Lord Denning would say, it's not for an English court to make a contract. Uh, that is for the parties to make it. Our, our job is to uh, find the meaning of the language that they have used. Does that address what <laughs> you have in mind? <laughs> There's a there's, there's a there's a pregnant there a pause, a pause, pause of of deep and profound yes, thought. I think that's exactly what this case represents. Um, so you would be happy then to say, well, our basic approach, and and you will have to correct me on this, the basic approach is objective. We're taking a third party interpretive approach, yeah. or actually, we should probably call it construction. Um, of yes. of the clause or the contract or whatever that needs correcting or that should need correcting. But if you can show objectively that subjectively the parties held certain intentions, then that's okay. <laughs> There's too many yes, images in that. that? Well? There's too many. Was it Paul Davies? I think who said it? there's there's too many subjective yes. objective uh, objectivities yeah, around. Said, there's too many. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I yeah. is, is that you have to show subjectively. That's what was through the party's mind uh, that they thought they had reached a concluded, settled arrangement on this particular point. I accept entirely that that particular question can only be resolved with the subjective test. That is, had you reached a concluded, settled arrangement on this particular point? 
Yes, you'll be testing what their response is um, through a sort of lens of objectivity by, by asking yourself, well, how reasonable is that assertion, as it were? And therefore, does it look like it was genuinely felt, held? So if both parties are saying, yes, we concluded that particular point on, say, Tuesday the 12th of March, whatever it is, whatever would transferred between us on that day, that was our clu concluded uh, arrangement. We didn't come back to that point subsequently. Now, I think all of that is essentially a subjective test, if you have to give the flipping label to what's going on here. And, um, and at the moment, still closer right. to Legat's uh, test than Hoffman's. Well, only, only on that, that's why I've said a number of times, I think. Now, Lord Hoffman is not saying subjective evidence is inadmissible. I, I th don't think he's ever said that. But what he has said is that, okay, once you get to that point and both parties are saying on Tuesday the 12th of March, what we transferred to one another by email represents our concluded position agreement on that particular point then at this next stage we now wearing our objectivity lawyer-like hat look at what has passed between them and ask ourselves and what the hell does that actually mean <laughs> that i think is my basic point and th so th you know i i know you weren't happy with me going on about evidence tim but at root this is what this is kind of like about how you prove these things. I know, you know, you would say, well, uh, you know, you're a scholar and an academic. You're not, not so bother bothered about that. But I can see that this is really what the parties are yes. arguing about. Yeah. No, I, I'd agree. I think evidence is a big part of this. Absolutely. As you've said, we can still commit to a subjective test without destroying the need for yeah. a certain objective element within it. I think, to me, the biggest question was, and, and this is the alignment with unilateral mistake, of course, as well, um, is, is are we fundamentally worried about the subjective intention of the parties and we're trying to find the evidence for that, or are we actually aligning ourselves with construction and saying the entire thing is, is objective, and if you can't prove it objectively, you know, Rose and Pym type scenario, then tough you know and, and and this is the complete removal as it were from from common mistake away from unilateral mistake and i i think that that to me was 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 defining part and there, there i think because i think the mischief is the same that we're trying to solve we are closer to unilateral mistake than we are to to construction yes but I don't think we're far we I don't think we're far away from it. So I think the problem okay. that potentially we have is what is it that they mean by subjective? So actually I think Tim, by talking about the mischief that indeed is attempted to be corrected, for me, and I think I agree with you, we're probably not that far apart. What is it that the court is trying to do here is to say, okay, so first base, there is a contract, therefore we can easily put that into the category of contract interpretation. Second category, there is no contract, so therefore we can't look at it through the normal contract interpretation because there is no contract. So therefore I think what you've said, the mischief, what is it? So here, 
the base situation, one, there is a contract, two, there is no contract, therefore we can't use the same basis, but ultimately you are right. The yes, but that's, that's the point of difference between us, isn't it? That is the nub of it. That's why you are aligning yourself behind the Court of Appeal and, and why I'm out on a limb here, because um, to my mind, the situation of common mistake where there is a settled arrangement on a point but no binding contract at that point is closer to where it came from in terms of genesis. That is common mistake where there is a settled mm. concluded contract. And, and that Jocelyn case that actually developed the law was part of common mistake where there is a prior concluded contract. And so what the Court of Appeal now has done has, has, has ripped that away from, from its housing point, as it were, from its genesis, where it came from, and said, no, no, as, as you're saying now, Severine, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's about unconscionability or, or good faith because there, is, there was no concluded contract. Nevertheless, you've got people behaving badly. And so this is more like unilateral mistake. That's the point uh, of difference between us, I what think. What a wonderful summary. And I think we've actually managed to crack our record on longest recorded podcast so far. <laughs> so uh, on that summary, I, th I think we might finish there. Unless, Evelyn, you have some oh, profound dear. insight. To no, it. No, I think, no, I think it was beautifully said. I think so too. So, yeah. so we'll agree. We'll all agree that Maggie put it very nicely. <laughs> And then we have, well, then we can show. Yeah, at least we know what of, we're disagreeing on. Eh? <laughs> it's only taken us an hour and ten minutes or whatever to work that out. Wow. Um, what does that say about us? Well, if you have something to say about us, uh, dear listener, then do get in touch at um, unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And on that note, thank um, you. Bye thank bye. You very much and goodbye. <laughs>